good morning, church. Hope everyone's doing well on this fine day. I don't know about you, but I really look forward to this fall weather, the rain, the coldness, wearing jeans and a light jacket. If you have your Bibles, open with me to that passage Nathan just read. We're continuing through our study through 1 Peter. So this morning we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. How many of you have listened to a poem uh, or a song, read a story or a movie, and then find out later or or through a a random circumstance or whatever the case may be, you find out the backstory for the movie, kind of what was the the reasoning behind a song that was written, what was the reason behind a movie that was filmed? You ever had those moments? And it, it shines a lot of light, I think. It brings a lot of understanding into what's going on whether it's a movie, a book, a poem, a song. And many scholars and commentators believe that as Peter was writing this letter to the elect exiles, those who were scattered out of the dispersion, that he had meditated for a long time and thought through Psalm 34. So what I wanted to do on the front end is just read through this psalm. And if you want to, I know I said open to 1 Peter 2, but if you want to flip on your Bibles, maybe keep your finger there or a bookmark on 1 Peter and flip to Psalm 34, you'd just like to close your eyes and listen However best you want this to soak in, I think this will be helpful for us to get this on the forefront of our minds as we look through, especially what Peter says here in verses 1 through 12. So Psalm 34 goes like this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My mouth, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will save the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is what a lot of commentators and scholars believe out of this passage. Meditating on it came a lot of what the focus of 1 Peter is. And I hope that you can see why as we go through the passage together. If if you have your uh, sermon outline or your notes uh, that were up on the bar, you can take those out. I have three main points today. And we're looking at the overflow of what Peter talked about earlier. What does it mean to be holy people? How do we continue to live as God's people, as elect exiles, if we are set apart? How are we to live? What are we to do? And it says there, if 
in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So, some, some translations translate this as therefore. And again, you remember last week, the corny, cheesy Bible teacher joke, idea, thought. When you see a therefore, ask, what is it there for? When he says so, what is he saying so from? And if you look at the context, and your Bible is just up the next page in my Bible on the, on, uh, in the end of 1 Peter chapter 1. Because we have been set apart through the living and abiding word, because we, have, we are called to love one another earnestly, because we've given an eternal, we've been born of an eternal seed to an eternal fellowship that we are to love one another. Because of these things, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. If we are to love one another as elect exiles, none of these things can be present. If we're to love each other well. I think Peter lists these because these are kind of the opposite of love. Okay, if Peter is calling his elect exiles, those who's writing the letter to, to love one another, to create this new family, to be an eternal fellowship, everything listed here will unravel that, will destroy that. You could think about these things as anti-community builders, community destroyers. These are the opposite of love. Malice, it's kind of a junk drawer term. It's evil intent, evil desire, the intention to do ill will, deceit, trickery, lying, shrewdness, misrepresenting the truth, hypocrisy. It's like acting, you're pretending. It's not genuine. Envy, you spite and resent others' success. You, are, you want what others have. It drives you crazy. Slander is abusive words falsely spoken that damage someone's character and reputation. All of these things have no place in the life of an elect exile. And when he says put away, the idea behind it is like take off those old clothing. So you're removing the old, the old self, what you used to do, at, what used to characterize you, remove that. Get it, put it away. Stop what you're doing and like newborn infants out of this now, long for good things. Verse two says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you might be tempted to view this as how Paul addresses the church in Corinthians, where he says, I couldn't address you as mature people. I'd address you as infants. Like you weren't ready for meat. I had to give you milk. Okay, that's not what Peter is. That's not where he's going here. When he's saying long for pure spiritual milk, he's saying like newborn infants, not you are newborn infants. Does that make sense? So in other words, like a newborn baby craves milk, needs milk. Without milk, they're not going to grow. They're not going to be nourished. They're not going to grow. Like that, long for the pure spiritual milk. And the word spiritual here is, is the Greek word logikos. which is similar to the word logos, the word. So what are you getting at? It's a rational, uh, cognitive, mental capacity. This is how we're to grow as Christians, thinking through, studying God's word. As I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think about my two daughters who are still young, especially Avery. She's six months. She needs milk. When Avery doesn't get milk, bad things happen. She doesn't sleep. She's cranky. She's crabby. She doesn't behave well. She rarely smiles. And I think this is how we get too. Our souls get like this. When you're not feasting upon God's word, we're not intaking pure spiritual milk. Bad things happen. 
Just like a baby can't grow without the word of God, or excuse me, just like a baby can't grow without her mother's milk, we cannot grow without God's word. Do we have that kind of conviction, that kind of commitment to God's word, that we need it just like babies need milk? The Bible talks about God's word not only as milk, but as bread, like necessary for daily living. Is this the kind of conviction that we have about God's word? I hope so. He continues and says, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I think what Peter is saying here is that spiritual growth by longing for God's word is a sign that you really are saved. Longing for God's word, tasting and seeing that he is good, wanting to be in God's word is a mark of a genuine believer. It's a sign. A sign that you've been truly born again through the living and abiding word of God is through longing and growing in that same living and abiding word. You guys with me? The first principle that we see from the passage is that God's chosen people, point number one, those who have tasted that the Lord is good, are to long for the word to grow up. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter talking about here, I think, is referring to conversion. Conversion, like we've talked about last week, is not just an affirmation of mental ideas or facts. It's not just, I agree with doctrine. It's new taste. Like once God was boring, I tasted him, he was bland. I spit him out of my mouth. Now he's good. I want God. All these other things, they used to entice me. Now I desire God. I've tasted him and he is good. And out of this taste comes a more longing. Okay, it's similar to like eating Megan Schloud's chocolate chip cookies. You can't just have one. It is similar for me to eating a chicken wing. I eat one chicken wing, I'm going to eat 12. That's how it works. I get the taste, you bite into the wing and it, you know, it crackles. You know what I'm talking about, Well, It fuels that. And when I have wings, you know what I'm thinking about? When's the next time I'm going to get wings? You know what I mean? Do we have this about God's word, right? Like I'm feasting upon God's word. I'm tasting God. He's good. I'm savoring God through his word. And I can't wait until getting to his word again. Right. Practically to me, this would look like, like we're in our word, like we need food. Like we'd not just be, we open our Bibles in the morning, we read a couple verses, we close it. We're good to go, baby. We're, we could be malnutrished. Malnutrished? Malnourished. I love you guys. I really do. I appreciate your grace and patience with me. Malnutrished. That's a new Danielism. <clears throat> This looks like wanting to soak in our scriptures. We're listening to God's word on our commute, to work, on the way from work. I listen to God's word in the shower, right? I'm, I gotta be doing something there, right? Sometimes I'll eat up, never mind, I won't get into that. Okay, <clears throat> we wanna memorize it and meditate on passages. We wanna get God's word into our hearts and into our minds. We wanna hear God's word preached on the Lord's day. We want to help others grow up into salvation. We want to be equipped through God's word. I, I pray often that our church would long to be in God's word. And isn't it fascinating that he's, he doesn't say, guys, read your Bibles. Really important that you read your Bible. 
you better do this, read it. That's not what he goes after. He goes after the heart because he says long. Peter is commanding desires. We think, oh, oh, something will just happen in my heart and it will just come about. And I'm just waiting. I'll just wait for that moment until I want to read God's word. Then I'll get in God's word. You ever thought like this? Not going to (laughs) happen. Maybe for those uh, few unique people. It doesn't happen like that in my life. Any of you guys? Like, I create a longing for God's word. You know how? By reading it. Okay, you want to long for God's word? You got to be in it. How many of us can honestly, genuinely say that we long for the word of God all day, every day? Anyone in here? How would we rate our longing for God's word? There's chicken wings. There's God's word, okay? Whatever it may be for you. There's Seahawks Sunday. I never miss that. I might skip my Bible reading for a couple days, but it's okay, you know? Too close to home? Do we have a longing for God's word? Do we want to desire it? Do we want to long for it? And I think what Peter does in this moment by commanding a longing is he drives us to repentance. He drives us to God. Because like me, I don't think anyone in this room, we crave God's word all day, every day. We go through times in which it doesn't seem appetizing. We wake up in the morning, we don't want to be in God's word. We'd open up our phone and we'd be on Facebook, Twitter, the Yes Chat, Instagram, whatever, you're, whatever open, the news. That's more enticing to you. We need to pray, ask God, God, when I wake up in the morning, I need your help because if I, I might not come to your word because I don't want to. And even if when I do, I can just check it off a box. I can read God's word. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't stir anything in my heart. God, I need your help. This is what it does. Peter's command to long for God's word drives us to God, drives us to repentance, drives us to uh, leaning on the Holy Spirit. We must become disciplined and we must commit to it. And it will become, I think it will move from a duty to a delight. The more we feast, the more we're hungry. The more we're hungry, the more we'll feast. And it's a beautiful cycle that once we're in, it's awesome. But starting that cycle can be challenged. And I've been really encouraged lately in the life of our church, people are starting to read the Bible together. We're starting Bible reading plans on the YouVersion app. You can even see little check marks. Who doesn't do their reading for the day? Pretty sweet. You can make comments and share what you've been learning. I'm really encouraged by that. The the word of God is starting to grow. I think we're longing for it. It's growing in our church. I'm excited about that. Number one, God's chosen people, those who have tasted that the Lord is good, are to long for the word to grow up. Peter continues in verse four, as you come to him, indicating, I think, a one-time conversion experience where you, you came to Jesus. But Peter is also referring to a continual coming to Jesus as you come to him through the word, a living stone referring to Jesus who was rejected by men, but Jesus is chosen and precious in God's sight. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Notice what Peter is saying here. Jesus, the living stone, chosen, precious in God's sight. He was rejected by men. 
Now God's people, his elect exiles, are living stones. So what can we, what can we take from this? We're chosen and precious in God's sight. Amen? That's sweet. But at the same time, he's introducing and going along what he's talked about in suffering. We will be rejected by men. We can't expect to be liked by everyone. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be hated. Increasingly, I think, especially in Western society. As Jesus is chosen and precious, we are chosen and precious, but we also will be rejected by men. And he says, as you come to Jesus, you are being built up as a spiritual house. So as believers long for the word of God, they're growing up in salvation. They're tasting that he's good. They're feasting upon the word. They're coming to Jesus. They are simultaneously being built up. This is why I don't think you can say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. They're, they're one and the same. You love Jesus, you're going to love his church. You're going to be committed to Jesus, you're going to be committed to his church. Because notice what Peter says. He doesn't say the stones are just kind of scattered, they're heaped in piles. He doesn't say that. He says they're being built together. It, everyone has its place. They're rubbing together. They're locking in place. They're being built up. Everyone has a purpose. They're being placed by God. They're being built up as a spiritual house. And the idea of this word house is it could have a dual meaning. On house, on the one hand, it means it could refer to a physical building, referring to a temple. On the other hand, it could also refer to the family of God, a household. So what Peter is saying is, as you come to Jesus, you're being built up as a church. The church is being built up as we come to Jesus. Peter is saying that as you grow in salvation, as you grow in longing for the pure word of God, you are growing up together. You are being built up together as a living house. The house is growing. God's people are not only a spiritual house, as he says there, you're being built up as a spiritual house, but God's people are also a holy priesthood. Notice, Peter doesn't say that some are being built up. Some of you are going to be priests. Some of you are going to be called to a spiritual elitism. Some of you are going to be more representative of God. You're going to be more of his mediators. He says, you, you all, y'all, holy priesthood. Every believer is a priest. Do you think about yourself like this? I'm a priest. I am a royal priest. What does this mean? It means every believer has equal access to God. You don't need to go through anyone. Equal access. Jesus is our high priest. This also means that every believer has an equal calling to serve him and to be his witness. Just as priests in the Old Testament offer sacrifices and served as mediators between God and man, we, as his royal priesthood, are to be the mediator between God and the world. People are supposed to see who God is through us. Now, since the Old Testament sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus has talked about the sacrifice once and for all, the Lamb of God. It doesn't mean that this whole idea of sacrifices is, is no more. 
guy by the name of R.C. Sproul says it like this. While Christ's once and for all sacrifice of propitiation on the cross has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system and rendered it obsolete, the appropriateness of quote-unquote sacrifice understood as the grateful response of a redeemed people remains. These sacrifices are now spiritual in contrast to all the material sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. They are also spiritual in that they are offered in the power and by the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells and sanctifies every true believer. Such sacrifice is seen in both in Christian worship and pattern of be living. So since, therefore, believers are part of the temple, the spiritual house, it is suitable that they serve as priests there and that they offer sacrifices since that is what the Old Testament priests did in the Old Covenant temple. Now you might ask, okay, if, if I'm a priest, I'm a royal priesthood, I'm being built up as a church as I come to Jesus, what are these sacrifices that I'm offering? The Bible would say time, talent, treasure, but encompassing all of that, your whole self. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We can't think, well, that Old Testament system, man, I'm off the hook. I don't got to sacrifice my best animals, my best things, trade in my cars, sell the money, you know. I don't have to do all that. Raise the bar, everything. You sacrifice everything. I think this is a little harsh, right? Jesus says, you, you don't lay down your life for me and for the gospel's sake. I, you don't have me. You don't love me above everything else. You don't have me. Everything is in response to the call. Everything is to be viewed as sacrifice our whole life and they're acceptable through Jesus Christ. They're not acceptable because of ourselves. They're not acceptable because we are, make them acceptable. Jesus Christ, who was a sacrifice once and for all, who now serves as the great high priest, who is intercessing for his people at the Father's right hand, makes the sacrifices acceptable because they are through Jesus Christ. Number two, God's chosen people come to Jesus, being built up as God's people to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. So number one, God's chosen people are to come to him and they're long for the word to grow up. Number two, they're to be built up as God's holy priest said to offer spiritual sacrifices. And from this point, after verse four, Peter goes on to talk more about this living stone, Jesus Christ. He says, for it stands in scripture, verse six, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone precious, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Right here, he's quoting Isaiah 28. The good news about this, you believe in Jesus, no shame. Never going to have to be a, a fear or worry in your thought. No shame. There's therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to have Jesus be the cornerstone. Those who believe in him. So he says, this is honor for you who believe. And then he talks about those who do not believe. Verse seven. So it's honor for you to believe, and for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I mentioned earlier there, it says, uh, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, chosen and precious, a cornerstone. Uh, the cornerstone was the most important stone in any construction in the ancient times. That was the most important. 
from that cornerstone, everything was plumbed and leveled off of. So Jesus being this important piece, like the, these living stones are being built around this. And what I love about this is Peter saying, like our whole lives are built around this cornerstone. So our plans, our purposes, our values, our mission, everything is built around this cornerstone that was being, being built up. But the cornerstone also becomes a cornerstone for those who reject Jesus. The, the cornerstone that the builders have rejected. Peter is referring here that Jesus is a stumbling block. Talks about the latter parts of verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Have you ever stopped to think about how offensive the gospel is? It's offensive. Especially in our modern day. You're telling me that I need someone outside of myself to achieve fulfillment, salvation? You're telling me I'm not my best Lord and Savior? You're telling me I'm wrong? I need to repent? You're telling me I need someone to sacrifice for my sins? on a cross, that was necessary? That's offensive. Peter talks about it. He says, we preach Christ crucified who is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Right? We believe in a, in a guy who was born of a virgin. How impossible is that? He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. He called himself God. He said, believe in this and you have everlasting life. That's crazy. also offensive. It's a stumbling block. Jesus is still a stumbling block. And now we get into, I think, a bombshell that Peter drops here. The end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. And I think many of us would like to leave it there. As they were destined to. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> no, if we talked about earlier that it's all by God's grace that those who are elected and chosen, is it, is it really that far of a stretch that those who disobey do so because they are destined to? As uncomfortable as it might make us feel for us Western Americans who are all about our self-determining will. We decide, we do what we want. We are Lord and saviors. We are God. We determine right and wrong. We determine ultimately who's in heaven and who's in hell. Now, on the one hand, you can't just say, well, everyone, everyone doesn't believe it's just destined. God just decided beforehand. Because he doesn't say that. It says they disobey the word. So it's this, this tension that I don't think we can resolve in the scriptures. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They stumble because they disobey. They disbelieve. Yet, at the same time, God knows. He's sovereign. It's not out of his control. And if that makes sense to you, I don't know how it could. I'm just going to be honest. I've never heard someone explain this that doesn't err one way or the other. To me, that takes a, a leap some, that's something that's unbiblical mysterious working of God's sovereignty. 
People stumble, they trip, they fall, they stand condemned because they refuse to believe the gospel. They disobey the word. You see the human responsibility. But at the same time, this disobedience does not happen outside of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in the election of his people to salvation and the condemnation of those who disobey and disbelieve and reject the gospel message. If you're really thrown out of whack about this and would like further study, I encourage you to look at Romans 9, specifically verses 14 through 24. So he talks about Christ, the cornerstone. Most important thing, everything's built around Christ. But Christ, as the cornerstone, has also been rejected. They've, they've stumbled over him. He's a rock of offense. Jesus is offensive. And then he shifts his attention back to the elect exiles. He says, but you. No longer those who disobey, but you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all words that God described his people in the Old Testament. These are all words that were described about the Israelites. The, the three phrases here, the, the race, the genos, ethnos, laos. Genos is where we get genealogy, right? Ethnos, ethnicity. Laos, it means people groups, where we get the word laity. Saying all of this about, this is who you are the calling, the identity that my people had in the Old Testament is now on you, the church. The Gentiles who have been grafted into that, who are now one family. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. This is who you are. This is who I've called you to be. And Peter talks about how this comes about. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. There's nothing in these people that they were worthy, that God somehow owed them salvation, that they were better than others. All of this came about by God's mercy. This is how it came about. God's grace and mercy, by God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There's nothing that's special about us. There's nothing about special about the elect exiles here. Everything is dependent upon God's mercy. So you see, how did this come about? How did this chosen people, this royal nation come about? By God's mercy. And what is it for? Why have they been chosen? Why have they been called out? Why are they elected? Underline, highlight, I think this might be one of my favorite verses in First Peter. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've joked about this before, that God's people are not choice people. Okay, they're not, you walk into the market, you see the USDA choice Angus beef. It's elevated above the others. It's got special packaging, special pricing, much higher. God's people are not choice, they're chosen. And they're chosen with a purpose. Think about this when something or someone is chosen. Usually things don't stay the same. General idea, thought, right? Whether you're thinking about a kids at recess lining up to be selected for kickball, whether you're thinking about construction project and the skills that are needed, whether you're thinking about prospective employees at a job interview, whether you're thinking about dating, the choices that are made are not so that things stay the same. There's purpose in it. So you choose your spouse with a purpose, or your spouse chose you. Your employer chose you with a purpose, 
right? Like a saw is chosen in a construction place to cut. A hammer is chosen to nail things. We were chosen to proclaim. That's why we were chosen. God's people are not just chosen for their own salvation. They're chosen for service. They're chosen for obedience. God's people have been called to proclaim, chosen to proclaim the excellencies of God. The excellence refers to God's power, his great working, his wonderful deeds. Another way of thinking about this is the gospel. This is why we are chosen. This is why we are to joyfully sing and declare and herald and bear witness to the gospel. This is what we're called to do. This was our intent, our purpose. This was the mission that God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. This is the mission that he's given to the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been called to proclaim. We have been selected to sing. We have been pursued to preach. We have been elected to exalt. Go on and on. Think about these words that I like to do in my mind. Okay. We have been pursued to pronounce, called to proclaim, elected to exalt. And I would submit that I found in my life, and I've seen this in other believers, that oftentimes we feel distant from God. We feel in a, a dead spot in our faith. We feel like things are not where they should be because we are out of step with what God has called us to do. We are not living in accord with our design. Okay, how foolish would it be to brush your teeth with a hammer? You can imagine the hammer. As the toothpaste is put on your, your head, you're getting shoved into someone's mouth thinking, this is not what I was made to do, man. As foolish as that sounds, as silly as that is, do we think about the reason that we were called and chosen was to proclaim? Or is that something that's optional for pastors, missionaries, you know, spiritual elites, elders, maybe deacons, maybe some lay people, but really the ones who just want to get close with the pastor? Is this, is this our responsibility? Is this our calling? Our mouth wasn't made to complain. It wasn't made to continually criticize. It was made to proclaim. It's made to talk about God. This is why there's so much joy when we sing about Jesus. This is why I found in my life I have no greater joy than when I'm telling someone about Jesus. I share the gospel that day. I'm good for a week, man. I feel jacked. When I share the gospel, I leave that meeting. I'm just so, I'll text Will and Nathan. I'll call Stephanie. I'll tell it. Hey man, I just had a great conversation. I was able to tell people about Jesus. I talked about my testimony. I proclaimed his excellencies, all that he did in my life. And I'm jacked. I'm wired. I feel great. Why? This is what I was made to do. This is what we were made to do. You found that to be the case? Is your heart so cold because you can't think about the last time you did this? We were made for this. God's chosen people are to proclaim the excellencies of God. And the last two verses in here introduce a whole new passage, a new, a new where Peter is going in the letter. It introduces, uh, starting in, in chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through, I think, chapter 4, verse 11, is how the conduct is to bear witness to the gospel. So this is where uh, Will will be preaching next week about submission to authority, submitting to governing authorities. We're talking about husbands and wives, how we're to live in one another, living suffering servants. This is where Peter is introducing this kind of transition point that the elect exile are to bear witness to the gospel by the way they live and the way they interact with society. 
So he says there, beloved, those that I love, I, I, I set my affection on, urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weighs war against your soul. Notice this is very similar to chapter one, verse 14. You want to flip there in, in chapter one, verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is called to his holy, be holy. So similar command, similar thought, abstain from who you were, abstain from the world, don't live like you used to. But notice, although earlier in chapter one, the focus was on reflecting God, being like God, reflecting his holiness, the focus now is on witness. The focus now is on, you want to proclaim the excellence of him? You want people to listen to what you have to say? You got to live it out. Your conduct has to match your convictions, your confessions. As non-citizens, as sojourners and exiles, do not abstain. Excuse me, do not. That's what it means, abstain. From the passions of the flesh. The, the word flesh has the idea of those sinful, selfish, uh, rebellious desires, patterns, tendencies. That's what the flesh means. The flesh that is against the soul. Now again, want further study about this? I can't go into, into further detail. Uh, Romans 7, it's a great passage talking about the, the wrestle, the struggle between flesh and soul. But the idea is your flesh wants to overtake you. Your flesh wants to destroy your soul. It wages war against your soul. The flesh is not going after your soul for no reason. The intent is destruction of soul. Therefore, abstain from those passions. Abstain from the things of the flesh. The Christian life is about maintaining, cultivating, and fueling a desire, a passion for God, not for the passions of the flesh. It's a battle. It's a struggle. And this is, I think, to live in accord to a witness. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable means good, honest, moral, ethical, principle, righteous, decent, respectable, virtuous, upstanding. This is how we're to live among the Gentiles, among the world, among those who we interact with that are outside of the Christian faith. This is how he's talking about the outward focus here. So that, he says, when criticism comes from unbelievers, when the exiles are spoken evil of, some unbelievers will repent and believe the gospel. It says there, they will glorify God on the day of visitation by seeing your good deeds. So God's chosen people are called to proclaim the excellencies of God and keep their conduct honorable so that others may glorify God through the way they live. Jesus probably had... Uh, or excuse me, Peter probably had Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 here in mind. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And what Peter is doing is he's encouraging his readers. He's encouraging us. Think about the way that you live. Look at your conduct. Is your conduct honorable? Would others be able to see God's power and might and working through you that they would glorify him because of the way you live? Holy lives is for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, the multiplication of worshipers of God who glorify and, and serve him. And what we can't do today as the Mountain Church in 2018 is look back at this letter, look back at this time and say, well, people back then were a little stupid. 
They didn't have the technologies that we have. They didn't have the, the education. They weren't as enlightened as we are. So it was probably easier for people to believe in a crazy good news story about a guy who died on a cross, was born of a virgin, and was ro- like rose from the grave on the third day. Probably easier for people back then to do that. We're more enlightened. It, it's harder for us in North, the Northwest, in Des Moines, for people to see and believe the gospel because, you know, we're so smart out here in the Northwest and we value education so highly. The principle is not any different. If others want to see, believe, come to understand, have questions raised, they will do so with lives that match the confession conduct that matches the conviction. This is one of the best apologetics, defenses, reasons for the reality that Jesus really lived, died, and rose again. A new way of life. Godly way of life. An honorable life. A righteous life. How can we show people that Jesus really did live? He was a real guy. Really lived. Really died. Really rose again. We look different. I mean, that's a crazy story you think would produce crazy people. Unique story, unique people. Set apart story, set apart religion, set apart gospel, set apart people. The best apologetic, one of the best apologetics, I think, for the reality of the gospel is a transformed life. A life that is continually transforming. If you are a Christian gathered here this morning, does your life reflect the uniqueness of your confession? Could it be that the church in North America, the Northwest, the greater Seattle area, Des Moines, Kent, SeaTac, that people are not lining up on Sundays to gather with other Christians to worship Jesus? Have you noticed that? I meet with other pastors regularly in Des Moines. Their churches are struggling. People aren't just coming to church, gathering with the church. They're not lining up at the door. Why? Could it be that God is purifying his people? He's calling them to repentance, calling them to pure conduct, calling them to truly reflect who he is so that the world may see who he is through his people and have questions about why. Amen? I'm convinced of this as we've been planting the past two years as we started the mountain church, started in our house, slowly moved to where we are here. That people will get curious about Jesus by the way we live. Lives that are open and honest, visible. We're not shutting ourselves into our houses. We're not isolating ourselves from society. We're living in society in a set-apart way. I'm convinced of this. this is how the church is going to grow. This is how disciples are going to be made. Right, like we, we went public on Easter, you could say. We sent out 50,000 flyers, two rounds of 25,000. Everywhere closely around this place got an invite to our church gathering. Hey, worship with us with Jesus. We're not busting out of the seams here, are we? Okay, people are not lining up at the door. If anything, they're kind of walking in, sometimes late. 
They're moseying on in. We've run Facebook and Google ads. We've handed out hundreds of invite cards at the bus station at the light rail. Doesn't seem like people are really interested in Jesus. They're not just going to show up on Sunday. How are they going to meet Jesus? How are they going to hear the gospel? How are they going to be, have questions about who Jesus is? Through you. Through the way you live. Through who you reflect. How do we share this message if people are not coming to us? We're not starting the latest, greatest program. Right? Our light shows and our smoke. It's not attracting people. We have to go to them. We have to be set apart. We have to strive to be unique. We must realize that it is in community that is set apart. And in lives that are set apart, that people will see the difference that the gospel makes. People will see that our radical way of life, the way we self-sacrificially love our neighbors, love our city, love one another, and hopefully by God's grace, they will ask why. They will get curious. Friends, let us continue to long for God's word. I mean, we grow up. Growing upward. Let's put away deceit, envy, slander, malice. Let's be built up together. Let's grow together uh, as we look and offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as we give ourselves to God and to one another. As we grow as a church and be built up as a church and let us overflow outward. Because God's chosen people are not only called, commanded to long for God's word that they may grow up. They're not only called and chosen, being built up to offer spiritual sacrifices. They are called and chosen to proclaim. There's an outward overflow that must happen, that will happen. May we proclaim God's excellencies and, and be a witness to the gospel, not only in what we say, but in how we live for his glory and the joy of our city. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.